Amen. Wow. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4. We're uh, going through the book of Romans, and um, I just want to kind of reset where we have been, if you're visiting with us. Uh, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, or half of 3. Oh yeah, kids can be dismissed. Uh, we're kind of doing this here over the next uh, seven, eight weeks, something like that. Um, so kids are with us for a few minutes here in the service, and then are obviously dismissed for Kids Own Church. Um, so uh, we're in Romans, and uh, chapter 1, 2, and half of 3, um, the theme is the dirge. And uh, uh, I, that's not mine. That's actually uh, from uh, a pastor out in New York City. Just uh, forgot his name off the top of my head, but uh, it'll come to me probably in the next service. Um, and uh, the dirge, uh, and, and that's a word Jesus used, and it's about repentance. It's about actually the, the need for repentance because this world has fallen. So we have an unrighteousness problem. Everyone has a sin problem. There is no one righteous. No one does good. No one understands. No one seeks God. That, that's the dirge uh, of chapter 1, 2, and 3, and that's what Paul is trying to communicate. Chapter 3, verse 21, starts the dance song. Now, the dance song is there is a righteousness solution. It's available, and it comes by grace through faith in Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, dying on the cross in our place. Our faith in Christ justifies us. And Romans 3 introduces this, and, and you hear this word justify a lot over the next several chapters. Justify is a word every Christian should own, understand, get their arms around and figure out because that is our word. Justified, justification, justified, all those words are the same thing. Faith in Jesus Christ. By grace, faith in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his blood. And, and so what we're doing is Paul is, is laying out, this is it, towards the end of his ministry, and he's laying out what exactly is the gospel, what does it mean, what are the implications of this, and he's writing predominantly, or to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. And so he's bringing in a lot of the Old Testament because they're scratching their, their heads going, how does this all work? If Jesus is Messiah, where does this all work? Because it doesn't jive with what we understand about Scripture and everything. And so Paul is actually having to unpack Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament, they would call the Torah, the law, and he's trying to pull that in to say, hey, look, it was in the Scripture the whole time, you just didn't understand it or it wasn't taught appropriately. And so Paul, now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, goes on and begins to stress it is salvation by faith, not by works. And we talked about works last week, like it can't, or not two weeks ago, rather. It can't be by works, and he goes on to look, if a worker, it's that universal principle, if a worker works, he deserves wages. But those who have faith in God, well, they are justified by that faith. And so we, we stressed it was not by works, and so Paul's now going on with this thought, and he says this in Romans chapter 4, verse, I think it's verse 9. He says, is this blessedness 
only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. This blessedness being that God justifies the wicked, those who have faith in Jesus. The ones, their sins are taken away, their sins are covered, their transgressions are removed. Anyone who had faith in Jesus' blood. And he says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham was justified by faith. Under what circumstances was he justified? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham, our forefather, had before he was circumcised. So stop right there. He brings in now, it, first it was just not by works, now he's bringing in not by works of religion. At first, it was a blanket statement, anybody can work, but he's now saying, look, now specifically, your works of religion cannot save you, and he starts to talk about this idea of circumcision. Now, why does he bring in circumcision? Well, circumcision is a big deal, really big deal, in, in, in the Israel nation. And it came to uh, Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. In fact, if, if you could write here, in Romans 4, 9 through 11 right there. Write Genesis 17 somewhere. Go back and read Genesis 17. The entire passage is all about God coming, confirming his promise and his covenant to Abraham and saying, hey, the sign that you're in, that you're, you're all in on this thing, is circumcision. Now, obviously, circumcision is a profoundly personal sign that a man, and, and therefore the head of a house, belonged or said, I do have faith in you, therefore I belong to Israel, and I have a share in this promise that you've given to Abraham, my forefather. And it's a sign that we, my house, is going to be a house of faith. And, and there's no argument, Paul's not arguing against this, there's no argument that circumcision is a big deal. It, it is a big deal. It's something that God instituted. Paul's coming at this, he's saying, but that, that's not my point. My point is that religious works cannot save you. And he proves it by going after two things, the timing and the role of circumcision. So he says, well, when was Abraham circumcised? Was it, was it after or before he was justified? Well, you have to go back and look at it chronologically. God approached Abraham in Romans 12, or, uh, Genesis 12, said, hey, I've chosen you. You're going to be the father of many nations. Great. Genesis chapter 15 comes along a few years later. Abraham's going, God, what, what about this promise thing? And God says, look, I am going to do this. Go look at the scars. You can't count them. That's going to be how many people call you father. That's going to be your nation. And it says right there, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. Genesis chapter 15. Now, go down 13 years later, Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham, confirms the promise, the covenant, gives him the sign of circumcision. 13 years after he was justified by faith. 
Abraham technically was actually a Gentile for 13 years. If you go according to circumcision, which is what all the Israelites did. Israel was insistent. But when Paul was living, somewhere folk theology crept in. And they began to teach that, oh, no, 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 no. If you're not circumcised, you're not justified by faith. You're not justified. You're not in. And they started to switch it around. And, and, and they began to just pass this on generation to generation. Just passing it on orally. Oh, no, this is how it's supposed to be. And, and, and we would look at this and go, well, wait a minute. It's just right here in, in their word, their scripture, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Moses wrote these things. It's right there. Sequentially, you can read it. We know that's what happens. Folk theology starts to creep in. And then he goes on to say, hey, what, what's the role of circumcision? Paul says it's a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Well, a seal, God calls it, this is a sign in Genesis chapter 17. He says this is the sign of the covenant. It's a seal. It's proof. It's authentic, authenticity. But it's never, ever equated to being faith justifying faith. It's never that. It's the sign of justifying faith. And Israel somehow twisted it, and it became, no, that, that's the work that gives you faith. Circumcision became what justified people. And it's not just circumcision. He goes on, he starts to tackle then this idea of the law. In verse 13, he says, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the promise that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he now talk, he tackles the two big, and they're not even sacred cows, these are sacred like, this is huge. But the thinking is sacred cows. He's attacks circumcision, and now he's attacking the law. He's coming at the law, which is, they, they look at the law and go, why do you get? And he says, it's not through the law. Now, why is he talking about the law? Because somewhere in Israel's history, all of a sudden they said, oh, no, 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 now we have the law. That means we're justified. We've got this great talisman in front of us, the law. We must be saved. And Paul's like, no, that, that's not how it works. Timing-wise, it doesn't work out. And, and what you find, actually, is you read the writings of some of the more famous Jewish writers. Jubilee 23.10 says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Well, that's not true. He wasn't perfect. In the book of the prayer of Manasseh 8, Abraham did not sin against you. Well, that's not true. 1 Maccabees 2.52, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or question, reckoned to him as righteousness, meaning yes. Oh, that's not true. And they have the Pentateuch, and this is what happens. Folk theology creeps in. 
And, and when he's saying, you know, was he not faithful, he's referencing, that, that passage there is referencing when Abraham was tested, was he willing to sacrifice his son Isaac? And, and yes, he was. And if you read in Genesis 22, though it, sa- it doesn't say that it was credited to him as righteousness, it says he was blessed for his obedience. That's what it says in the Hebrew. It does not say the other one. Like his works saved him. And what's interesting is they say the law, the law, the law with Abraham. The law wasn't given with Abraham. It's given with Moses. That's why they call it the law of Moses. The law still had not been given. And what's interesting is it's also sequentially off because Genesis 15 That's when Abraham was justified by faith. Then you had Genesis 22, which is way more than 13 years later, because now Isaac, the son he was going to sacrifice, is old enough to talk and understand what's going on. So it's well beyond 13 years, could be 20, 25 years. And Paul's just saying, look, read Scripture. Read your Pentateuch. Go back and study the Scripture. Your thinking about this is completely wrong. And he references Romans 3, 19 and 20, where he talks about the conclusion. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be justified in his sight by observing the law. And he says it again here. The, the law, all the law does is bring wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's like, why are you appealing to the law? That's not the role of the law to justify you. The role of the law is just to reveal whether you've been obedient or not obedient. You're boasting in the wrong thing. And, and somehow they get derailed. It's, it's plain in God's word. They have it written down. And they forget. And God comes to Paul and he starts to have Paul write this, justification by faith. By grace, through faith in Jesus' blood. That's justification. It's right there. Over and over again, Paul's writing justification by grace, through faith in Jesus. Justification by faith, through grace. Justification by faith, by faith, by faith. Just to ensure that God's people would never lose their way on this. Never do this again, right? And guess what happened? We did it. Fast forward 1,500 years. We've been talking about Martin Luther. I just finished a biography uh, by, by him, by Eric McTaxis. 500-year um, anniversary was last, uh, last year in, in October. And so go back to there, 1520, right? That, that's the era when, well, that's the year, or 1518 is actually the year when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses, I think, somewhere around in there. In his church in Wittenberg, the church there had 19,000 different relics. Relics were, were things that um, the Christians, the church taught, hey, if you go see these things, it will earn you righteousness. So these are, this is the list of some of the, the relics they had there. They had a, a, really, they had a thorn from the crown of Jesus. They actually had the thumb of Jesus' grandma there. They had a patch of cloth from Jesus' swaddling clothes. They had a strand of hair from Jesus' beard. 
four hairs from uh, Mary's head, fragments from Mary's girdle, uh, a piece of bread from the Last Supper, 1,500-year-old bread, um, 35 splinters from the cross, and, uh, of course, the the best of all, a a feather from an angel. (laughs) This is just a small list of the 19,000 relics the church had. And, and what the church taught was this idea that your works of penance could earn forgiveness. And, and not only that, there, there's this doctrine of, they call it indulgences, the, the idea that a, a person could literally buy themselves spiritual credit. <clears throat> Paul's talking a lot about credit. It was credited to him, credited to him, credited to him. They're saying, if you buy this, what has been sanctioned by the church, you can literally buy yourself spiritual credit, indulgences. So if someone said, hey, or your priest said, hey, or your pastor said, go do this, give this much money to the poor, to the church, and you give that, but then you go and give 10 times that amount, well, you, that 10 times extra, well, you could spend that however you want to, spiritually speaking. So you could buy off your forgiveness. And, and and you could, the church eventually began to introduce this idea that a person could literally buy back or buy off years a dead relative or friend spent in purgatory. And so they would sell these indulgences, and, and of course it was to pay for their decadent lifestyle, their greed, their pride, and all the, the stuff that came with it. And, and the famous phrase that tipped Luther over the edge was this phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Luther had had it. He'd already had it, but then he'd really had it. And and this was going on in Wittenberg. And this is what Luther, he's now studying the Bible. Actually, he's well past that. He studied it in the early 1500s, so he's now pastoring and shepherding, and he's a professor, and he's teaching this, and he's coming against this all the time in his home church. In fact, his home church calculated with all the 19,000 relics, if you visited them on all the certain right days and you went to all the masses performed that the church offered, you could shorten your lifetime. And they calculated this. You could shorten your lifetime by 1,909,202 years and 270 days. If you did all this work. And before we get all lathered up, and say, oh, Israel's, they're so dumb. And the church in the past, they're so dumb. How do they not see it, right? How do they mess it all up? How do they get all caught up in their folk theology? Now, before we start pointing fingers, I ask people all the time, you're a Christian? Yeah, yeah, why? What makes you a Christian? Well, I go to church. I pray. I grew up in the church. My family's been a part of that church for three or four generations. I believe in God. I have a Bible. I keep the commandments. I don't drink. 
I don't dance, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with boys who do. <laughs> Give to the church. It's so interesting how much folk theology is in the church today. It's at Freshwater. It's at every Protestant church around. This isn't just a Catholic thing. This is a church problem. This is actually even not a church problem. This is a human condition problem. Paul says back at the beginning of chapter 8, he says, where then is boasting, right? Or actually at the end of chapter 3, it's excluded, right? But why does he talk about boasting? Because it, it's really this. When you ask this question and people start answering it, I do this, I do that, I, 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 right? Boast, 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 pride, 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 pride. That's the problem. And every generation has the same problem. I'm not dead. I'm not that helpless. I'm not that unrighteous. Right? Look what I can do. And, and, and I think that's it. Don't tell me I can't earn it. I'm, I'll prove you wrong. And I think the, the most difficult thing about being a fallen human is pride. Not the most, but one of the most difficult things is pride, right? To actually humble ourselves and say, I cannot save myself. I am that messed up. That is so hard to do. Our pride just won't yield. It led Israel away from God. It led the church to pervert the truth. Even though it's so clear Justification by faith in Jesus' blood. You, you can't get away with it. It's just in here. And that's why Paul wrote verse 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith, that it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Meaning, anyone, everyone. As it is written, he quotes Genesis again, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, meaning anyone who has faith in God. Justifying faith. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. It's the only way. Jesus was uh, sitting in the house of a tax collector and all that guy's friends who were, who were famously sinful and messed up. And the religious people, Matthew 9 talks about this, the religious people were like, ah, what is he doing over there? I can't believe he's with those guys. And Jesus' reply was, look, I have not come to help out people who are healthy. I just not. I've not called, he says specifically, I've not come to call the self-righteous. I've come to call the sinners. The self-righteous are the people who just say, I can save myself. I'm good. And what God says through Paul is sola fide, faith in Christ, so that it may be by grace, right? Through faith, 
in Jesus. Sola fide, to the Jews who had the law, to the Gentile kids, to us who were always at church every Sunday, faith alone. To the ones who never had the law, to the ones who never had a Bible, to the ones who never had mom and dad take them to church, to the ones who'd never even heard about church, to the ones who say, yeah, I, I would never be caught in Jesus' presence. Like, he would never want to hang out with me. He says, no, by grace through faith. To the ones who, who think their heritage is everything, it's still only by grace through faith in Jesus. Robert uh, Capon, I think is his name, he's an Episcopal priest, and he wrote about Martin Luther's time. And I love this, because imagine the church doesn't know this. Salvation by faith? The church doesn't know this. Martin Luther, his professors never taught him this. He never heard this from the, from the pulpit when people were preaching. He never heard this. Can you imagine? He's reading the original Hebrew. He reads about that. Then he goes to the Greek, and he reads Romans 1, justified by faith. And he gets to Romans 3, justification by grace through faith in Jesus' blood. And, and this is what he says. He says, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism. What a, what a sentence. A whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture. One sip of grace, right, would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. Grace has to be drunk straight. Home before we started. You ever feel like you're not home? You don't have a home in here. You ever feel just that sense like, I, no matter what I do, it just doesn't go away. No matter what I do, that feeling of being lost, that feeling of not being forgiven, that feeling of not being free goes away. And it's not even a feeling, it's a knowing. You have to take it straight. It's grace. And it's faith in Jesus' blood. And, and that's what's so hard. It's just so, wow, his blood. That true faith, it, it comes from that self-awareness that we are weak, that we're helpless, we're broken, we're vulnerable. We're... And in that same awareness, we see Christ, all-powerful, fully God, all-knowing, 
all present, and yet became helpless, became weak, became broken, became vulnerable for us. And he lays down his life for us, his blood for us, his body broken for us. His resurrection, our guarantee. And he says, this is how I want it set up. You bring nothing to the table but your love and faith for me. That's it. That's it. I have these pictures sometime in my mind of uh, being God's presence. And sometimes it's a picture of all of us singing together, and I'm, I'm just in the crowd. And it's so much fun, like this morning. And then there's other times it's just, uh, I don't know what's going on around me. We're still in the throne room, but I'm just uh, on my knees in front of him. How is this possible? Just ask him, do you, do you really mean it? Do you really love me? Can I really come to you this week, this broken? Like, can I really be here? grace through faith in Jesus' blood. And he says, yes. Some of you need to come to God and you just need, your pride needs to snap today. It just needs to break. And that's what happens. Like your back breaking. Your, your pride needs to break, and you just need to say, Jesus, I need you. And you know it in your soul. And we're going to close with just a, a song. Um, if you need to make that decision today, I, I just invite you to come up during this song. We have people that would love to pray for you. and. They'll, they'll come up and join you. If God's stirring things in your heart that have nothing to do with my message, which would be incredibly humbling for me, um, but he does that. You may not even be here to hear this message. You may be here because God wants you here for other things, and you need prayer. Come forward. We have people who would love to pray with you. We're going to sing this song. It's a simple hymn. It just talks about the power of Christ's blood. And as we sing it, um, if you have faith in Jesus, sing it to him. <laughs>